I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Just the Right Book. If you haven't listened to my full conversation with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, you can download it and go back and listen to that. But we thought it might be fun to share with you just the Q&A part of our event at the Yale School of Management. So here it is. Before we get to my last uh, question, because we could sit here for a very long time and happily uh, listen to you, uh, we're going to take about 15 minutes or so and take questions from the audience. Now, let me just remind you, because I know we have a lot of smart people in the room, your job is to ask the question. (laughs) It is the secretary's job to answer. Not yours. And then, as some of you may or may not know, we have an overflow room, and we've, we've given them the opportunity to give us some questions on index cards. So don't think I'm trying to sneak in more of my own questions. <laughs> okay. Oh, we've got Good. some we already. We can actually see them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you have a question, uh, someone will come over with a mic. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, given the life you've lived and the career you've had, is there anything about yourself that you still work on? Um, yes. Uh, 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 mostly how to get taller. Um, How's that going? Not well. <laughs> I know. Um, no, I think basically I want to uh, keep a view that is optimistic and to try to be a problem solver. Uh, I look at it from a number of different um, angles, but I am not a complainer. I really do want to be a problem solver. And the thing that I try to do is to to rationalize my crazy life by connecting dots of trying to figure out how one thing leads to another. And I'm a really good dot connector, uh, but it's mostly I want to make sure that I continue to be curious and optimistic. Uh, here's a question from our other guests. Would you please comment on the thawing of the relationship between Russia and China? Um, I think that it's an interesting development in the following way, since kind of looking at the history of that relationship. The Sino-Soviet split, which happened, it allowed us all of a sudden to develop a relationship with China. I do think that uh, one has to be very wary of what is going on and why they are cooperating. Um, And some of it has to do uh, with the expansion of their power um, and in terms of how they are dealing uh, in the rest of the world and what do they have in common. Um, And I think uh, we have to be wary of it, but there are also times that it could be useful uh, if we can figure out diplomatically how to be able to understand what they're doing. Mm, Thank you. At least to my mind, I think that... um some of the hallmarks of fascist thinking is an attack on the press and undermining truth in general and facts. Um, so I'd be interested in your, your distinction between Trump being undemocratic versus fascist, you know, and the chicken plucking. That was a good analogy, one feather right. at a time. How, what that distinction is. Thank you. Well, I, I think that part of the issue here is 
that, as I kind of mentioned, it is not easy to get at the facts these days. Therefore, one has to be willing to look at things that you disagree with and try to figure out what is going on. I think that the, the problem is that we are addicted in some ways to what looks like a um, reality show. And we are willing to listen to things, and we don't question enough what is going on. And so I think we have to work with each other to look at different sources and try to figure out where we go. But it is the hard part, because you have somebody that is the president of the country who says that X is simply not true, or the other way around, that all of a sudden there are murderers and rapists and drug smugglers that are coming in and uh, ruining our country and using the fear factor. So I think we have to be very careful of falling for the fear factor, is the way that I would put it. A question uh, from our other guests, is how could the intelligence agencies in the State Department allow Trump to meet five times with Putin without any American present? Well, I think that it is, unfortunately, um, they are not in a position to object. I mean, they can say they don't like it, um, but they can't all of a sudden walk in the door and say, I'm staying here. Um, And I think that part of it is um, the fact that um, the responsibility, frankly, for uh, figuring out how the president is in meetings uh, goes to a combination of the chief of staff and the national security advisor. Good luck there, too, right? That's the problem. But I think it's very hard. I think the part that I think is a real problem. What is very interesting, I think people don't fully understand how important interpreters are in a meeting. Um, You can't operate, uh, even if you know the language, it is very important to have uh, an interpreter there. Uh, What was interesting, when I went to Russia, um, um, I'm talking to Yeltsin, and he says to the interpreter, you know, she speaks Russian, stop interpreting. And I said, no. Uh, mainly, uh, partially, the the rest of the delegation didn't speak Russian, but it also gives you time to think about what they're saying and to absorb it. But to I I don't believe that it's appropriate all of a sudden now to call for um, getting the interpreter's notes. That undermines what the role of the interpreter is, mm. which is why one needs to have somebody else in there. Or if they are in a meeting by themselves, that you have a president that has, uh, is able to report on what he's done. And none of that seems to be happening. But I don't think that um, it's possible for all of a sudden people to say, you can't go into that meeting without somebody. Could or would you imagine that the foreign relations committees in Congress might begin making those sorts of demands? They could. But I think that the question is what leverage they would have on that. Uh, I mean, one of the things that is important, I have to say, are the individual relationships between and among leaders. It does make a difference. Um, And it doesn't mean that you never allow a meeting, but as a standard operating procedure, this is not working. Um, and I think that we there need to be more hearings about that. But it is very hard to make that demand unless you're standing at the door and you walk in, uh, and that's not likely to happen. I think the hard part, and I've been trying to visualize this, 
being at the White House is quite incredible, and you kind of think, oh, my God, think about all the history that's happened in, in these rooms. And, um, and you go into the Oval Office, and it's really quite overwhelming. And I would go in and brief President Clinton. Um, it irritated me sometimes that he would be doing crossword puzzles while um, I was briefing him, and I thought, I'm older than you are, and listen to me. Uh, <laughs> but the, the bottom line... Punk. Um, he, he actually not only was listening, but was able to then, when we had meetings with ex-leader, um, in terms of absorb the information, also he would ask a lot of questions. I can't visualize what it's like to walk into the Oval Office at the moment. I truly can't. And I don't know how one deals with that. Um, and whether there are people, I mean, we've now gone through several chiefs of staff, how this is going to work, um, and it does depend on the personality. That part of it's yeah. kind of depressing. Madam Secretary, do you believe that our president may be an asset of the Russian government? Um, I hate to think that, but I do think, as I mentioned, I think in some ways he's a gift because the things that he's working on by denouncing NATO or not being helpful in terms of um, other policies, that um, he, he is somebody that is uh, willing to fill, fulfill some of the, the things that uh, Putin is doing. But I think that's what the investigation is all about. He clearly has had... Um, a lot of strange relationships with the Russians uh, prior to coming into office. And then I do think, as the investigations in the Mueller report is looking at, is what have been the contacts. But I'd, I'd have real trouble going to your question because I can't, I find it hard to believe. But I do think that some of it comes out of ignorance um, and some of it um, out of a, a sense that. Um, there has to be some other way. The thing that I find appalling is the lack of understanding of our history, um, of how NATO was created, what the purpose of NATO is, what the Russians did in Crimea, kind of a lack of interest in some of the uh, antecedents of all of this. And, and I do think that, I don't know, I'm not a shrink, but there is something about wanting to be with leaders that flatter him. Well, and and think about the fact that he seems to flatter people like Putin or even Orban over our intelligence department or State Department. Well, I think that's the part that makes it so hard in terms of whether... Uh, what the influences are on him. And I think that's the hard part to figure out. What I found so interesting, and I have to say, I think Harold would agree with this, is there's nothing more interesting than to work in a government where you respect the people around you, where, in fact, you learn when you disagree. I mean, I tried very hard to have people come into my office and have present different views. President Clinton loved it when we had different views about things, and he'd ask a lot of questions. And, and I think that what is missing at this point is kind of a sense of history and of the desire. And, and let me just say this again. I think this is an incredibly complicated time. 
Um, and um, I, everything that I ever learned about international systems has changed. By the way, I went to college sometime between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire. And so uh, <laughs> um, a, a lot of what I learned is, as we used to say in the government OBE, overtaken by events. But there are an awful lot of aspects of the international system that aren't working for any number of reasons. Uh, globalization, nationalism, um, technology. And I think we haven't sorted out why and what the next phase of the 21st century is about. And I think the best minds need to be thinking about it. And there needs to be a combination of people in the government talking to people in academia and in a lot of different places. And, And there doesn't seem to be Um, a willingness to do it, and I think that's what we have to do, is to motivate ourselves to understand that this is a different era and it needs different uh, ways of dealing with problems. You know, you were the last Secretary of State of the 20th century, the first of the 21st century. When you look back now on the 20th century, do you see the seeds of what are worrisome and changing the order now? By the way, it's interesting you say that because I used to say exactly that I was the last of the 20th and the first of the 21st. The problem was I started saying about six months after President Clinton named me, which was really <laughs> presumptuous, um, that he was going to keep me. He did, and so I am. And I have to tell you what was so interesting about President Clinton. We kept talking about building bridges to the 21st century. We knew that there were going to be different aspects and thinking through various parts. I do think, however, there are seeds from the 20th century that are there. And some of it, we, uh, it has been the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. And a lot of the issues that led to World War I were not totally resolved. And some of them do have to do with boundaries of countries and uh, their um, anger at not having been treated properly, a number of issues in terms of national uh, identities and ethnic conflicts. Um, and I think that the Cold War... Uh, froze a lot of those conflicts. Um, And I said that one of the things that happened at the end of the Cold War was the ground unfroze and a lot of the worms started crawling around. And so we really are still dealing with some of those problems. And the question is, what are the structures that can really handle it? Uh, And we can't get away from history. Uh, And and it is worth, whenever we celebrate anniversaries, what do they mean? Why? What happened, either good or bad, uh, that we need to think about? Uh, We live with that, which is why I'm glad that some of my book is about history. So the last question I would ask, which you you in some ways close uh, the book with, is what should those of us that aren't in office, are citizens engaged and caring, be doing? I think speaking out, but not just on the basis of anger, but on the basis of what direction we need to go in and on the basis of what we know about history um, and our relationships with each other. And I think the thing we need to sort out is what is America's role in the world? Uh, We can't be isolated, and we are not victims, but nothing is going to happen if we don't actually think things through and not just not just be angry. I think that that's the part. And to have a to-do list, I will add to mine as I go along, but I I think I laid out some aspects of it, is to recognize what's gone wrong, 
um, and what our problems are in having this undemocratic president, but then also really look to the future um, and be Americans uh, that um, treasure diversity uh, and are optimistic and understand that we have a very important role to play but also be more civil towards each other. I think it's a very important mm. part. And, and I'm mostly in terms of remaining optimists and not being angry and having a plan and respecting each other. Okay. We love hearing your comments and book recommendations. Please keep them coming. Email us at info at justthewrightbookpodcast.com or reach out to us on our Facebook or Twitter pages. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. Our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. And thank you all so much for listening.